Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Hey, Zahava. This month, we're talking about The Last Days, a documentary about Hungarian Jews who survived the Holocaust. The documentary came out in 1998, but was recently remastered and re-released on Netflix. For that segment, we're going to be talking to Rachel Libman, the manager of public programs at the Newberger Holocaust Education Center. And for our second segment, we're talking about the new Pew survey of Jews in America. What, if anything, are our takeaways? So for our first segment, we're talking about The Last Days. This is a documentary that originally came out in 1998, it's directed by James Mole and um, produced by Steven Spielberg. And it focuses on the lives of five Hungarian Jews who survived the Holocaust. It was released, re-released on Netflix last week, and it got us thinking about Holocaust education and how it's changing in a world where there are fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors available to um, do kind of the Holocaust education that I think so many of us were familiar with is from when we were children. We have Rachel Libman to chat with today. Hi, hi, Rachel. Hi, Tamara. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. Um, Rachel is the manager of public programs at the Newberger Holocaust Education Center, which is associated with the UJA Federation of Toronto. And Rachel works on a broad array of educational programming, including the center's signature annual Holocaust Education Week initiative. So thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. Thanks. It's great to be here. I haven't, I haven't watched a Holocaust documentary in a little while, and watching this one it felt in a way like a throwback, like something about how it was produced and what it kind of like looks like felt very 90s to me. I found it so intense. Like I did not find it to be, it wasn't one of those things where you're, you're just very conscious the whole time. Like, wow, this was like a very 90s way of looking at it. I was like, this is a very 90s way of looking at it. And also like, it is extremely effective. <laughs> I really like found it to just be a super intense watch. And I'm curious what your, your experiences were with watching it. I have to say tomorrow, I, I agree with you on a few points. I think the, the nineties aesthetic, um, in some ways for me, like brought me back to myself in the nineties. And so then brought me back to like, just, I just, I felt really vulnerable while watching this. Many, all of the people who the documentary follows were young. They don't really talk about their ages when they were experiencing the things they were experiencing, but they talk about things like baby brothers who are two years old, or they talk about seeing their parents or, you know, being ripped from their lives as like normal teenagers. Um, and you know, though that is a story that I so remember really being imprinted on me about what would this be like for myself as a young teenager or, you know, nine or 10 years old. Um, and then another really intense part of this documentary that I guess I just haven't encountered much recently were just there's actual footage. It seems like I, I'm not sure. Maybe Rachel can shed some light. I could have done more research, but what what this footage was from. But just, you know, very short snippets of Jews crossing the street in a ghetto or a camera sort of pan spanning a, a field and or even watching people get shot and their corpses thrown into mass graves like there, there's real footage and um, and photos that just always for me crank up the intensity especially at liberation but um yeah th those two things left me feeling very vulnerable during the film one thing that i was thinking about was that i've seen so many more feature films that tell holocaust stories than i have documentaries i've seen you know a small fewer than five for sure a small handful of documentaries like this and the the before and after was very interesting to me. They follow nearly all of the five survivors that are being interviewed um, return to a concentration camp where they were imprisoned um, and watching them walk through those with their adult children um, is a big feature of this. And so that very much made me 
as somebody who has been on a heritage trip to visit concentration camps in Poland, I sort of placed myself in the position of those adult children. And, and that was the direct relationship I felt. Um, but Mimi, I agree that the footage of actual pre-war life and then actual um, most mostly footage from liberation of concentration camps, though the documentary footage from the historical documentary footage was not of the testifying survivors themselves, but of the larger circumstance um, was very powerful and, and uh, made it very hard. To, it, it, it's a, it got you away from the talking head element of it all. Um, which I thought was really important to actually, because otherwise this could very much be elderly person talking after elderly person talking. And it's easy to dissociate from that. I think, I don't know, Rachel, you've probably seen many, many more of these than I have. Um, what did you think of this sort of specimen of the genre? First of all, I, I think I, I was really actually impressed with the film. I wasn't expecting to be as, as sort of riveted as I was, having been somewhat desensitized to the type of 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 um of film and all that. But I, I was really quite um compelled by each of the speakers and their stories. Um in terms of the documentary footage, uh, sorry, of the of the the B-roll, so to speak, um, I would say that probably some of it is perpetrator footage, and that's also a lot of the images that we do end up with that are kind of iconic. Um, with um, with with what you think of when you picture the you know typical Holocaust uh, footage or um, or photographs that you know of, um, the liberation footage is probably captured you know within the you know, a few days after liberation, a lot of the allied forces kind of went in, liberated the camps and then kind of came back and realized what they were actually seeing and needed to start documenting. Um, so there's a mix of both. And some of the more historical stuff that looked like it was coming from pre-war Budapest and that, I w- I'm not sure we'd have to, you know, we'd have to go check their sources. But um, I would say it was a mix of those kinds of of sources. And, um, you know, when, when thinking about those lenses, you have to sort of think about who was taking that those images and why and 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 what were the people in the in the footage were they aware that they were being filmed were they you know completely were they okay with it Did, you know and that and some of that is is interesting to think about um and obviously you know the documentary needs that kind of footage to kind of break up as Zahava said to break up the talking heads but also to kind of bring you back to what they're actually talking about because of, otherwise you're looking at you know it's funny because I didn't actually think that they were so elderly. And when I started watching it, I was like, oh, right, I forgot Holocaust survivors were younger. Like, because right now we're really dealing with a very elderly population. And to go back 20 years and think about what they used to look like when I was also like starting to, you know, engage with the subject matter a lot more and, and growing up, um, it, it kind of brought me back there and reminded me of that. Um, and I like that, that 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 kind of happened through the film. But otherwise, you're looking at these people who seem like they have very comfortable you know, well-adjusted, often affluent lives. And you kind of need that, that jolt back to what they're talking about. Otherwise I think it feels very far away and they're walking through a field and like, there was one shot where there was, um, I think the Auschwitz iconic barbed wire and there was like a field of wildflowers. And I think you really do need to like reposition the lens and remind the viewer that you're talking about something pretty horrific. Otherwise it just, you get lost in the fact that it's a nineties and there's nothing horrible going on to these people right now. One of the things that the film does is it follows um, some of the survivors as they like try and go back to their homes and the small towns that they came from. Um, and I thought, honestly, the the most surprising thing about this film was one of um, the women in the movie, her sister had had experiments done on her by doctors in Auschwitz. And the one of the doctors survived and was acquitted because he also helped some people to not be killed. Um, and so he is interviewed. So this was like also just the first time that I'd ever heard a perpetrator be interviewed and be pretty open in some ways about what had happened. And so they actually have this woman whose sister had been a subject of these experiments talk to this doctor who had been somebody I don't think it's really fair to say conducting experiments, whatever thing he was doing. And he was super evasive. um, And she was in the interview. And she afterwards said, you know, I was really upset because I kind of I I was trying to like 
hold my anger at him in. But then when he was getting more evasive, I was, I was more angry at him. And I was like, yeah, what was the point of that? Like, is, is he really still at a point like 60 years later where he doesn't realize or 50 years later where he doesn't realize like this was a very bad thing and he needs to like be really ashamed of it. And it basically seems like he's not. Um, and that was fascinating. Like, I, I thought that was just like a really, there, it, there wasn't that much to it. Like there wasn't, it was a very small part of the film, but it was certainly something I've never seen before anywhere else. And I thought it was good. Although I can understand why they didn't go any farther with it. Cause it's very unsatisfying. <laughs> I, I almost wished that at that point that maybe one of the filmmakers, I, I wish that somebody had tried to dig in a little bit more yeah. Um, because I think that the survivor was, you know, she was asking, here's a document of all of the experiments run on my sister. What do these things mean? And the doctor was like, Oh, this just means all good, all good, all good. Oh, look, she lived six months. You know what that means? And I was like, wait, what does that mean? But I felt like there were a lot of follow-up questions and, and, I, I wish like you, Tamar, that we had gotten a little bit more from him, the doctor. I also thought it was fascinating just to see them interacting with the like archival records in the camps. They went and did some archival research to try and figure out what had happened to some of their family members. And watching it, I was just like, wow, what must it be like to be an archivist in a place like this? Like that seems like such an intense job. And, you know, we are following these survivors who are having this really intense experience of trying to find um, out about their own family's past. But you're seeing these people who are, you know, this is just their day to day life. And like, what must it be like to just constantly be kind of marinating in this particular trauma, which I guess, Rachel, you might have more insight into what that is like. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's something personal, obviously. Um, I'm, I'm Jewish and I, my grand, my grandmother's an active, still thankfully alive, um, Holocaust survivor speaker. And so I kind of grew up with it. Um, and one of my, my grandmother on my other side, uh, was German and escaped a few years before, uh, the Holocaust. So, I mean, for me, it felt very like natural and I'm not as sort of traumatized by it and on an ongoing basis. Um, it's, it, you know, I say to people sometimes my job is less about like listening to the survivor testimonies than it is about like the logistics of, you know, of doing any job that you would do, you know, like it's a lot of email and meetings. Um, but I think it's actually a really interesting point you bring up because these people who work at these sites of atrocity really are stakeholders and sort of stewards of this history that is often, tenuously theirs or or they're struggling with it or they just live in the town nearby and you know for, for by and large most most of these places don't have a lot of jewish people living at them in them still um a lot of them are sort of near rural areas or small towns um and they're staffed by people who grew up there or who work there and are either passionate about about you know preserving the memory of the holocaust or are pragmatic and you know someone needs to operate the washrooms at auschwitz it's a humongous tourist site and I think it's a really interesting um, thing to grapple with. You know, it's it's sort of I want I, I don't actually know what's going on right now without the without the tourists, but there there's a lot of kind of grief tourism or travel industry surrounding um, you know heritage visits and doing your family's archival research or making these types of films. It's still happening. Like a lot of films are are st- or research is being done for projects like this kind of film, and and they do have to have people who are staffing the sites from everything, um, you know, from experts who are working with the you know with the with the records. Or or, or the installations of the exhibitions or people who are just, you know, making sure that the property is not falling down. So um, it certainly brings up a lot of questions about, you know, who owns these places and what should we do um, moving into the future now that we're, you know, 70 years out of uh, past liberation. You know, this really brings home for me the question of who who wants to be responsible for remembering um, and who needs to be responsible for remembering because the the film shows a couple of sides of this, right? So the survivor that Tamara referred to earlier, Renee Firestone, who uh, interviews the doctor and comes away with sort of a frustrating lack of information about her sister's experience. She also goes to her former hometown and um, 
goes to the home where she lived before deportation and runs into a neighbor who's still the same neighbor who was a little boy when she was, um, when her family was deported. And it's fascinating, but also intensely uncomfortable. You know, she's saying, did you ever talk about us after we were taken away? He's like, oh, we, we heard your sister died. What happened? Was it really as bad as we used to see on the news? Um, and there's this sort of, um, tension between the survivors themselves looking for their own family history, looking for their, you know, lighting candles in commemoration of their own relatives, and then sort of asking other people, bystanders or perpetrators, to remember and care and be involved in that memory and the deep reluctance of those people to do that. Um, I think that Renee's story especially exemplifies that. And that's why I found her narrative the, the most interesting in the film. And just, just watching that happen and, and feeling the palpable discomfort was, I think, really valuable. I do not remember seeing this movie before, but I saw, I definitely saw like Renee's story. Like I knew, I've thought many, many times about a movie I saw in which a woman like swallowed diamonds to keep them. And she made them into a teardrop shaped necklace and she was go like, I had that memory in my head and it's was so weird to watch it because I was like the whole time I was like, this is very similar to a different movie that I've seen, but like none of the rest of it seemed familiar to me. So I don't know if that means that I saw just a segment of it or if like I saw it completely forgot it except for that part, but it really remembered um, her story in particular. Um, but it does make me think like Zahava, you're the part where um, Renee is like talking to the neighbors. And one of the things that they say is the, the walls have ears because <laughs> they're in Ukraine and they're, they seem to be uncomfortable talking about what happened because they are feeling watched in some way. And of course, like there is a camera on <laughs> it's a really funny thing to say, like the walls have ears when you're like, being filmed by a camera crew because it's like and also there's a big boom mic like right over <laughs> our heads um, but but it made me think about like there have been different kind of kinds of reluctance to talk about what happened that I think have been fueled potentially by different things I feel like what I'm hearing about Holocaust education now and Rachel I don't know if this jives with your experience is that it's really a focus on like what it means to be a bystander and empowering people to think about like stepping up when they see things that are wrong. And when I was a kid, I feel like so much of Holocaust education was about like, listen to these stories. Um, and it would often end with like, it's really important that we never forget, or sometimes it would end with like a little something about bystanders, but that was not the focus going in. Um, I'm curious if you feel like that is a shift that you have seen or like kind of what, what kinds of trends you're seeing in the field right now? Yeah. So it's actually a really interesting point. We are in the middle of um, a renewal campaign for our physical museum site, which was um, started by the Holocaust survivors in the Toronto Jewish community in the eighties. And we are opening hopefully within the next two years, um, a revitalized and um, brand new museum experience. And a lot of it is going to be testimony centered because that's one of the richness of uh, riches in the Jewish community is like how many Holocaust survivors made their way here and gave testimony. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that afterwards, but um, one of the things that we've been grappling with in how to tell the story is what lens are we going to use and how are we going to, you know, um, engage with the story in a way that is really current. And the bystander, perpetrator, victim paradigm was really, really popular for a very long time and is very successful in many, many ways. Um, there's actually a German word called Mitlaufer, which means running with, which actually um, one of my colleagues always um, always reminds us of. And I think it's actually a, lot, a little bit more helpful than bystander because, you know, a bystander implies that that person was really very passive and therefore they almost have no moral complicity. 
But I think that it's a little bit more complicated than that. And if we want to think about um, about people having having agency, and it's really specifically also relevant to thinking about um, the quote unquote victims or the people who were who were victimized by the Holocaust, you know, to think about them as having agency as well, and that they made choices and that there were things that they could or could not do, even if they were very very you know small choices or difficult choices. So same same goes for the quote unquote bystanders is that by standing by the wayside and not engaging or not doing anything, you are making a choice. And so I see that sort of shift happening. And that's something that we're really thinking about in how we're going to be telling our story um, for the future generations who are hopefully engaged with our, with our new museum, because um, you know, you don't want to bully to, to distill it down to bullying, which is what happened a lot when we were kids, I think, um, you know, you don't want to equate someone on the, in, in your in your school who's just mean to another kid with Hitler. That is not a pedagogically sound uh, line to draw and it doesn't help anybody, right? You don't want to traumatize right. people um, and you're not learning much in that in that story. Um, so so yes, that was like a really very common um, shift uh, like paradigm uh, structure to look at and I think was very helpful in kind of breaking down different um, types of responses to the Holocaust and to events of the Holocaust. But I think that now we're looking a little bit more at agents and at, you know, at, at not acting being a choice as well. Um, and thinking about the different types of opportunities people had and what could you do in your, in your construct. And I think the other really interesting thing about that interview is that it reminded me that borders were shifting so much and that in 1998, they were, you know, less than 10 years out of the end of the Cold War. And that really shifted a lot of things in terms of what we know about the Holocaust and what kind of access we had to archives um, and information after the fall of the Iron Curtain. So, you know, it would have been relatively new um, at that time to have been going to places that would have been in the East and um, and and having those, the people who, who lived there dealing with this, with what happened, even if, I mean, he was, he was five, I think he said. So it's not like, you know, or something like that. So it's not, it's not like really a five-year-old has any sort of moral responsibility in in, in, a, in an event like that. But at the same time, you kind of have to like think about the 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 50 years that had elapsed for him and what life had been like and you know the different types of of occupation that that they had been under under in their town. And um, I think nowadays we look at it very differently because so much time has passed and we think about it more critically and there's much more conversation and study that's been done. Um, and so the just the kind of conversation has been had so many times. Um, whereas then it may have maybe would have been a lot fresher and they would have been much more nervous or not as familiar uh, to talk about it. Rachel, you just said that a lot of the planning for the upcoming Revitalized Museum is going to be testimony center. And I'm assuming that that means that you're using a lot of audio or video recorded testimony um, that survivors yeah. have given over the last few decades. Um, which is very much kind of like re-encountering this 1998 documentary that's being intentionally remastered for a 2021 audience. Um, that we're we're taking testimony that has been given not not live, not this week, you know, but by necessity and also by virtue of the efforts that have been put in over the last several decades, you know, that, that you're preserving testimony uh, at sort of at the moment that it was given. Um, is that, are we seeing a difference in how people are uh, receiving and relating to testimony the longer ago it was recorded? And how are we thinking about in the Holocaust education world, how are people thinking about um, either keeping that fresh or framing it differently for audiences to hear it 20 years later or substituting other things for recorded testimony that are perhaps more effective for a new audience? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Lots of uh, lots of things that you're asking, I think. So with recorded testimony, there were a number of different um, collections or archives, so to speak, that were created at different times. And um, the um, Shoah Foundation, which is one that most people are familiar with, which is the one that is connected to the film that we watched, um, was the one that was founded by Steven Spielberg after creating Schindler's List and has been actually um, collecting other collections and kind of becoming a home for um, for now they have 55,000 survivor testimonies, not just of Holocaust survivors, but also of um, like the Nanjing Massacre, Cambodia, um, Rwandan survivors. Um, and they're really 
kind of becoming this tremendous repository for researchers, for filmmakers, for people who are looking to study their own family history. Um, and they're doing an incredible amount of work to preserve those records because a lot of them were done on um, the kind of media that degrades. And so not only are they um, preserving it and updating it and backing it up and backing it up, they're also indexing, making things accessible online. The, the whole archives are accessible to uh, researchers and students at various different libraries and research institutions, excuse me, including my own. Um, and, um, and of that, there were 1200 that were done in Canada that, um, ha that were done in the eighties that were, we made an agreement with the Shoah Foundation and, um, and they are part of their collection now and they are being, they were digitized and they're being indexed and put online as well. So in terms of accessibility and preservation, that's being done in a lot of different ways. There's different languages, there's different experience groups. You can, it's, the search functions are tremendous. And it's really like, you know, it's it's um, it's at the University of Southern California and they do really incredible things with the um, technologies. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that at another point. But um, what we've noticed is, yes, there are things that are tremendously distracting about um, interviews that were done in the 80s or 90s, um, the bulk of them being done in the mid 90s. Um, you know, people's outfits, people's hair. Like, I think students of today look at that as, you know, bygone era. Um, and um, sometimes the audio quality is just not that salvageable. So there are, you know, physical things that get in the way of learning the story. But what's I think what's really quite successful is how digestible they make it. So there are some platforms that you, you students can go in and create their own um, clips or stories by excerpting pieces. There's all sorts of tagging. Um, and, um, and if you can, you know, distill things into little sound bites, or if you can break it up, we find that the, the students are much more um, willing to engage and get their hands kind of in, in invested in in creating um, their own um, narratives or learning about it on their own. So there's a lot of like that discovery type of learning. Um, we're also taking new testimony um, for the purposes of filling in gaps because, and this is also a really interesting point, a lot of questions or narratives that survivors were saying either weren't asked or followed up, up on. So there's an entire group of people who are studying um, sexual trauma or sexual violence during the Holocaust and, and genocide in general. And there isn't a lot there um, because in the 80s and 90s, people just weren't asking the questions that we want to ask nowadays. So, you know, there's only so much research you can do if it's just not available. So um, there's a lot that has been tried to, that people have tried to do in the in the recent years to to kind of fill in some of those gaps to ask those questions. Obviously, right now the only people who are still living are of a very specific experience group. You know, very few um, are are camp survivors who are adults. Many of them were children or teenagers. Many of them were hidden children. People from places like Hungary, which was invaded um, by the Nazis in 1944, is much later than Poland, which is 1933. So people were younger um, and therefore are are alive now in, in many more numbers. So, you know, there's a lot. Um, there are um, there are different types of questions that people are asking nowadays, as I mentioned. And, and I think also what we're doing is it's never just the testimony. It's the testimony in tandem with things like photographs and artifacts and telling the story in multiple layers. So people can sort of choose how to dive in and what area to kind of uh, focus on on, them, on their own. And the other thing that I would mention is that we've done some really interesting work with these types of resource kits where we've created created, um, you know, facsimiles or um, copies of artifacts or of documents, made them like for a classroom use. And then we've interviewed the survivor to whom they belonged and asked them about those artifacts or documents. So we have a couple of really successful programs that we piloted within the last five years on these. And we've tried to transition them into being um, a virtual classroom experience um, given the recent pandemic. Um, and now we've made them into online exhibitions. So it's kind of like they go hand in hand, right? Most people don't have the energy to sit through a three-hour survivor testimony from start to finish. Some people have the interest to dive in and to search and to get the, the clips that they want or to work with it and do kind of something like all the someone was researching all the moments in a survivor's testimony where they broke into song, um, which is like fascinating. Um, but um, but for us, it's going to be really like, you know, having those different types of content available, including more recent testimonies um, so that people can kind of not choose your own experience, but can go to the piece that, that, that they are, are spoken to about or that they're responding to. 
That was a very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. I asked like a second part question. So I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, we only have a little time left, but I'm curious about, uh, I have experienced Holocaust education entirely as a child. It's certainly become clear, at least in the United States, that there's lots of adults in the country now who don't have any real education about the Holocaust. And I'm wondering, like, aside from going to a museum, which is like a very active thing for someone to do, like, are, is Holocaust education for adults something that people are thinking about or working on? I mean, I hope so. Cause it's my whole job. <laughs> I don't do the, um, I don't do the student, um, the student programming. That's, um, my colleagues, I do adults, um, uh, public programming, basically. So film screenings, book launches, lectures, you know, we have this annual program called Holocaust Education Week, which we used to get 30,000 people a year. Um, and it's in partnership with inst- with institutions and communities throughout the city of Toronto and surrounding region and communities. And there are you know, similar types of events um, across the U.S. and certainly across Canada as well. Um, that said, I think we're speaking to the choir, you know, preaching to the choir. Like, I, I do think that we have a cultivated following of people who are just interested and it's very hard to reach people who are not, whether they feel that it's just, you know, they don't know what it is. There's been studies in in both the U.S. and Canada about um, kind of the kind of alarming lack of understanding and um, awareness. Um, but it's really available. There are so many, I mean, how many Holocaust movies are there and how many, you know, top selling, you know, book, Oprah's book picks were there about the Holocaust. Like there's just, there's a, there's a real, there's a real, um, opportunity out there if people want to access it. For me, I think the challenge is that those aren't always the best avenues to really learn something meaningful. And I don't know that there's a way of like, you know, saying to people, don't pick up that book. It's really not good. You know, it's not a good representation <laughs> and it's not what I'd want you to learn. Pick up this memoir instead. It's that that's not possible. So, you know, I think that that's really a challenge, but it's definitely out there. Like it is ubiquitous and, um, you know, there are Holocaust museums in so many cities in the U S I'm constantly surprised. And there are traveling exhibitions hosted by other museums. Now, obviously museum goers are people who are, you know, genuinely curious about this type of thing, but, um, you know, I don't really know how else you can get adults in the door other than to make the programming interesting and to work with like local film festivals or local arts and culture programs, um, you know, to, to get the programming out there. There's some really captivating stuff that's being done. Um, like I mentioned by the Shoah foundation that I'd love to just mention here for a second. Um, the, um, they took a couple of, of really compelling survivor speakers and, um, piloted some interesting programming. One of which was a virtual reality experience back to the concentration camp that he was in. So you put on a set of VR goggles and you walk through Majdanek with a survivor and he tells you about each spot as you're going through, which, yeah, is really um, immersive and intense in a way that I don't think the average person is necessarily interested in or ready for. But we were luckily lucky enough to partner with them as an educational pilot in 2018. I think it was 2018 and bring it here. And we piloted it with some non-Jewish school students and lots of adult groups. And it was really compelling. Um, and then they also do um, an interactive testimony platform. And that one's quite available out there in a lot of different host museums. And that's where you can actually hear Renee Firestone's story as well. Again, um, she's quite well known. And um, and there that is a more interactive format where survivors were interviewed over the period of a week in a like set up studio with green screen and I think 120 cameras from different angles. They asked 15 hundred questions over and over and over again over the period of this week and filmed it in all sorts of different ways. Um, some of them are done in alternate languages like German or Hebrew or Spanish. And um, and then all, the end product is something that it ha- uses like a, 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 a voice software similar to your phone's assistant where you can ask a question and then the database pulls the response. So it's kind of like a simulated conversation. Um, and you may have heard about this as the quote-unquote hologram. Um, it's not in a hologram yet, but it's sort of designed to be a 3D type of conversation that will simulate talking to a witness of of this experience long after they are no longer alive. So, you know, that's a really interesting um, project as well. And again, it's about access. Like, I don't know how to get the average person who's not at all interested or engaged to be interested and engaged, nor do I necessarily think that it's right for everybody. You know, it's certainly traumatic and we don't want to, you know, expose people to things that are just not 
um, in their wheelhouse to deal with. Um, you know, there are lots of different types of traumas out there and there are lots of different ways to kind of get your entry point into learning about the Holocaust and whether it's through a Holocaust book or a film or a documentary like this one, Netflix is a pretty popular platform. Like hopefully people will watch it, um, or through learning about something else. And then you find your avenue in. Yeah. I was really glad to see that this is remastered and is available on Netflix. And I think, you know, I feel pretty confident and this is often a question we wrap up with, but when it comes to recommendations, like I, I think I'm really going to tell people like, this is not your like Saturday night viewing, but it is a really good film. And I found the story so compelling and the, the storytelling um, of the documentary was just really well done. I would encourage a lot of people to watch this. Rachel, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. We really appreciate your expertise and um, helping us sort through all of these big, big questions. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. So for our second segment today, we're talking about the Jewish Americans in 2020 study by the conducted by the Pew Research Group. Um, this is a study of what the um, Jewish American community looks like and what they um, do and what is important to them, roughly speaking. Um, the last one came out in 2013, and there were roughly a bajillion think pieces in the Jewish <laughs> community about about it, which was like both interesting and pretty boring at a certain point. Um, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about this study before um, it got talked talked about to death. Um, just some main takeaways from it. The American Jewish community is growing and it's more diverse than ever. It's um, largely educated and affluent and it leans democratic. Um, most, of, most of the young American Jews in this country are marrying non-Jews, um, but many of those families are still raising their kids to be Jewish. So yeah, this, this study came out. I've been seeing some people talk about it and I'm really curious what you all thought were kind of some of the more interesting takeaways from it. So I'm going to cop to not having read sort of original survey materials, um, but I've been reading some coverage. And the summary stat that jumped out at me the most is that young Jews, that is uh, adults under 30, the majority are either Orthodox or not denominationally affiliated. And most of those who are not denominationally affiliated uh, claimed to identify as Jewish, but not uh, religious. So Jews of no religion is what the study calls them. So to me, this um, projected polarization, that the youngest Jews are either uh, Orthodox or not affiliated, kind of struck a chord of fear with me. Um, and I say that weirdly as somebody who is not very personally invested in the growth and flourishing of specific non-Orthodox denominations. So um, maybe that sounds a little disingenuous, but the notion that we are headed for, a, it feels like more of a schism when the middle ground is hollowed out and that you're seeing less of a spectrum than you are just the poles in the future of American Judaism. That that one threw me for a loop and I... I'm still piecing together how I think about that. And for the record, the growth in orthodoxy is not the growth in my sub-branch of orthodoxy, right? I identify as modern orthodox and, you know, fully one in 10 of this younger Jewish group is um, Haredi and of the of the more, um, more right-wing within orthodoxy. And that's where the birth rates are highest. And that makes sense. But we're talking about a more intense form of polarization than if you had sort of a spike in modern orthodoxy and a spike in unaffiliated. We're really talking about a hollowing out of very broad middle. And that, that really struck me. I mean, I, I also was thinking like, wow, last time the people who came out of this study with doing the most hand-wringing were definitely reform and conservative Jews and the same is true now. And, you know, I think Rachel B. Gross's article was saying that like, we're kind of misidentifying what religion is. There's lots of people who are telling us that they're a Jew of no religion. They're not affiliated with a movement. 
but like they're telling us that they're doing things that like bring meaning to their lives um, that are Jewish. And they find those things to be things like eating Jewish food, learning about the Holocaust, connecting with the state of Israel, like those things um, all. Right, exactly. Right. And those things all bring a lot of meaning to people's lives. And so, you know, I think that we do have, we have to kind of understand that there is a paradigm shift here. Like if you really see Jewish life as synagogue based and institution based, then yes, this is a loss. But if you see it as like Judaism is something that brings meaning to people's lives, it's not necessarily a loss. Um, so that's one, one thing. Um, uh, I, I also like, I felt sad looking at this because I, I agree like the hollowing out of the center is worrisome to me, but I also felt like it's not surprising to me. Like, I don't think that, and I, you know, I'm a member of a conservative synagogue and like, I don't think it does a particularly great job of serving people. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, like I don't mean that to disparage the community. I just mean that like, it's hard to do. And like a lot of people are just not served by, um, some of these older institutions because, you know, what life is like now and, um, what they're looking for and who they find when they come to these institutions. There's just, there's all kinds of reasons that people don't, don't find this to be super compelling. And I don't, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, if you look at it from like the perspective of somebody who works at, a, you know, conservative or reform synagogue or temple, it's bad news. But I would like us to be able to have like a little bit of a wider lens of like, well, maybe like, maybe the, what we're learning is like these institutions as run now are not serving the people that they're meant to serve. So like we have to do some big changes um, if we want to serve those people um, and or like start different institutions that are kind of built around the needs of people whose needs are really not being met by these institutions. And I mean, I assume both of those things will happen over time. Um, I think that the, you know, one of the most interesting takeaways for me and something I think is related is, um, the, uh, so <laughs> a few things last time when this, when this study came out in 2013, it felt like, like just like a bomb went off in the Jewish community. Like everyone was talking about it constantly. And now I think that like, that is way less true. And I think that the reason that that is less true this year is because it happened at the same time as a lot of um, stuff happening in Israel. <laughs> and that meant that people were just a lot of Jews who normally would have been very happy to wring their hands about um, what they read in the Pew study were busy getting really upset about what's happening in Israel from one way or another. I think that like what was really interesting about this, about this study was really that it does show that there's been a pretty big shift in the American Jewish community in thinking about Israel. Only 27% of American Jews aged 18 to 29 strongly oppose the BDS movement, which is less than I think a lot of um, Zionist groups would like. Um, and less than half of American Jews, so 48% aged 18 to 29, feel very or somewhat connected to Israel. Barely half um, of Jews aged 30 to 49, 52% feel similarly. So I have such complicated feelings about Israel and like about everything that's happening there right now. And honestly, I'd rather gnaw my own arm off than talk about it. But looking at these numbers, what I think is like, there has been such a strong emphasis on Israel in so many institutions. And that is such a turnoff for people. It's a turnoff for me. Like, I just do not want to attend any program in which Israel is going to be discussed because 
I know it's going to be just bad. One way or another, I'm going to leave feeling terrible. Um, and I think that like, this is a hard needle to thread. Cause I think like, if you're a Jewish community, you don't talk about Israel, that there are people who are, um, you know, angry about that. And whatever position you do take about Israel, people will be angry about that. And so I think a lot of communities have just decided like, well, we're pro Israel. We have to like, choose what we're going to do. We're going to do that. And like, we're going to go hard in that direction for a variety of reasons. And I think that like, we don't have within the Jewish community, a high level of tolerance for people having different views about Israel. And that makes people feel uncomfortable. And like what's happening in Israel right now in the conversation, the kind of tenor of the conversation wider in the wider world has changed in a way that I think like, you know, in some ways makes me really sad and angry. And in other ways, I'm like, of course, because (laughs) the rhetoric that I have heard coming from the Jewish community has been so one note for so long that like, there is kind of like, at a certain point, people are going to be like, I don't believe that or that doesn't feel right. And they're going to look elsewhere. And to me, like looking at this Pew study, I feel like a big takeaway for Jewish institutions should be like, really rethink how much you crow about Israel in your programming, because it's just not people. There are people for whom that is a huge, meaningful piece of their Jewish life. But I think increasingly, there are people who are like, I don't, <laughs> what am I supposed to feel about this? Because I don't feel it. And I think that's hard. And I, I think that for institutions that feel that that's a non-negotiable value, there, there, there becomes a question as to whether the upshot is dial this rhetoric down because you're concerned about constituency retention or attraction or dial this rhetoric up and modulate it differently because there's a, you can't take for granted that your audience agrees with you. And you need to be thinking about it in a way that's more about winning people to the side of a cause that you think is fundamental to your institutional and religious identity. I can see, I can see that going both ways, but neither upshot is do the thing that you've been doing this whole time. Right. I'm curious whether the intermarriage numbers surprised you at all. So in the decade before the study, between 2010 and 2020, 61% of Jews who got married, married non-Jewish partners, and nearly three quarters, uh, that number's nearly three quarters among non-Orthodox Jews. I imagine like sending that out to an Orthodox, to the congregants of an Orthodox congregation is not, you know, again, preaching to the choir. Was that number about the same as you expected? Or I don't know, it jumped out to me as high, but A, that's because... Most of the Jews I hang out with are Orthodox. Mm. And B, I think part of it is where I live now, which is that in the Toronto community, there are very large segments of non-observant but highly traditional uh, Jews, especially immigrant communities from South Africa and Russia that uh, highly prize in marriage, even if they are entirely non-observant. And so I'm surrounded by a, something that... that it, um, where, where intermarriage is even more stigmatized than I was used to previously. So I'm, so this number really jumped out at me. I was sort of startled that it was 61% over the course of the previous decade. Um, but I don't know, did that number feel like old news to you guys? I was surprised by the number. And I also kind of had to catch myself from being like sad about it. But I was also like, ah. it's so complicated because it's like, yeah, I want, I feel like it's great when my friends who are Jewish marry other people who are Jewish. And like, that is something that they have in common with their spouse. But like, we've also talked about like what it's like to be a Jewish single person in the dating world on this show before. And like, I have a bunch of friends who are like out there dating in a global pandemic, like trying to find a Jewish partner. And it is hard. (laughs) It's just like really not, I think that like, a lot of the conversations about Jewish continuity are like from people who like met their spouse when they were like teenagers or really young adults. And like, they just didn't have to go on like a million dates. And like, is it better for people who are like out there trying to find a partner to stay single? (laughs) Um, Because they should have a Jewish partner and 
or to like marry somebody who is not Jewish, who like they love and have a connection with. And maybe like they'll have kids that they raise as Jews. Like, I don't know. I feel like the whole concept of Jewish continuity kind of grosses me out on kind of a base level. But like, I also just feel like when it comes down to like actual individual people's lives, I feel a lot of like, if you just told me that like I had to go find a partner right now, I would be like, never mind. I give up. I'll be even go for the rest of my life. Like it's hard. And I think a lot of these studies just don't really, they're, you know, they're not designed to grapple with that, but a lot of the conversations about it don't really care about like the reality of, of dating. And I think that that is a big piece of it. This 51% number made me think in two directions. One is how much of this is online only. And I don't mean to say that online harassment is not real life. But there is, I think, the sense that you encounter that a small number of incidents are encountered much, much more widely um, by people who are not their targets, but who experience them very powerfully because they find out about them. Um, So some of that, I just wonder, like, in the week that we are speaking, right, there have been a number of very prominent, very ugly um, incidents of anti-Semitism in the United States and in Europe um, that if I were not online, I would be totally unaware of. And I have encountered none of that in my personal life. But I do feel like in the last couple of weeks, there's a significant sort of rise in a particular kind of anti-Semitism that I wouldn't be aware of if I were not online. Um, the other thing that I'm wondering about is how much of this is uh, camouflaged if you are not Haredi. Um, because the more visible you are as a Jewish person, the more likely you are to be targeted by anti-Semitism. And there's a fair amount of sort of the privilege of modernity, the privilege of liberal Judaism and of flying under the radar, right? There's a degree of passing that almost everyone who isn't Haredi benefits from. Um, And I fall in this weird category where um, you kind of, the only thing about me that really jumps out is the fact that I usually am wearing a scarf as a hair covering, which you either know what that is or you don't know what that is, but I am not nearly as uh, as on the radar of potential anti-Semites, I suppose, um, as somebody who's sorry. And so I do think that there's a degree to which pe- people who pass may understate the intensity of the experience and the frequency of the experience of anti-Semitism for people who really don't pass. I mean, to me, it's almost like what that emphasizes is how bifurcated the American Jewish community is. Like, you know, we're seeing that the Orthodox community is growing, but it really is the the Haredi community and that is, you know, growing the most. And they are also the community that is subject to the most hate crimes because they are the most visible. Um, And I think that like there is... I don't know. I just think that like the question of anti-Semitism is so complicated and there's so much that people have kind of invested in the idea of anti-Semitism um, that is like true and real, but also sometimes I think leads people to make decisions that aren't really based on the reality of their own lives. Um I don't know. I just find it to be, I I also felt like that 51% number was really bizarrely high. And I did feel like there is such a big difference between being physically attacked and seeing a swastika somewhere. Like those are both bad things. I don't want to like downplay how scary it is to see a swastika somewhere, but it is not the same as being physically attacked. And I do feel like, um, I don't know. There needs to be a little bit more pulling apart of like, what are we actually asking about here? And how much fuel do we want to put on the fire of fear of anti-Semitism in communities that are 
that can easily pass, but now like suddenly there's a lot of anxiety and fear on anti-Semitism that I think is, you know, it's not based on nothing, but it also is like maybe not super productive, but I have a history of being wrong about things I say on anti-Semitism on this show. So I'm going to stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there's a lot more to this Pew study and um, I guess there's a ceasefire in Israel. So maybe we're about to have like a huge slew of articles coming down the pike on them. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how this study gets digested over, over time. But I think that it's time for us to begin our endorsements. Um, Mimi, what is your endorsement this month? So here in the Boston area, we are experiencing a heat wave. Um, Unfortunately, this heat wave has caught me unprepared with no air conditioning and no window units. So I want to endorse reading during the heat wave to your child, A Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. It's just a delightful romp of a story. And I found that it really did make me feel cooler every time I thought about, you know, freeing some snow from a tree and having it plop on my head. I was just felt like I had just taken a nice cool shower. So that's one. The second is I I want to endorse a thread by somebody I follow on Twitter. His name is Alex Zeldin. Um, His Twitter handle is at Jewish Wonk. He actually is one of the people who experienced um, an anti-Semitic incident on Friday, um, you know, as he was preparing for Shabbat. I believe he lives in the Upper West Side. And I just really appreciated the ways that he described basically being followed by people um, yelling things at him as he was, I think, leaving a grocery store with food for Shabbat. And then the ways he talked about how this has not changed um, a lot of his beliefs, how he doesn't want to use this story to whip up hysteria. Um, So I'll link to, I think, two different threads in it. Um, I just found him to feel very grounded about what he experienced and the broader context. Nice. That sounds great. Um, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So... This endorsement is sparked by our conversation with Rachel Lipman in the first segment and specifically by as we're thinking about um, what it means to try and target um, for Holocaust education adult populations who are not previously interested. Have either of you read Trevor Noah's 2016 memoir, Born a Crime? Yes. So good. No. So this, so Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show, uh, put out um, a memoir back in 2016 called Born a Crime. That's really more of an essay collection. It's not a single sort of linear story. Um, and there is a chapter um, late in the book called Go Hitler! Exclamation point, um, which is a to a Jewish ear, extremely bizarre story um, about a friend of his growing up in South Africa who was named Hitler um, and with whom he was in a dance troupe that got engaged to perform at a Jewish day school um, in in Cape Town, um, which I believe is a day school that some of my husband's South African relatives actually attended, though not at the exact time that Trevor Noah was growing up. Um, but the way he talks about how a child might have come to be named Hitler and not out of any sort of specific Nazi ideology and what happens when that bumps up against the local Jewish community is really fascinating. Um, and there's a, a quote in the book. So he basically says something like, if you know essentially nothing about the specifics of the history, you have this vague sense that Hitler just was like, perhaps this amazingly powerful badass. And um, there's there's a quote here. The, the name Hitler does not offend a black South African because Hitler is not the worst thing a black South African can imagine. Every country thinks their history is the most important. And that's especially true in the West. But if black South Africans could go back in time and kill one person, Cecil Rhodes would come up before Hitler. If people in the Congo could go back in time and kill one person, Belgium's King Leopold would come way before Hitler. Um, 
And this is part of a, a larger thing that I think is not in the book and in context meant as Holocaust minimization. So I don't want it to come off that way. But I think that for the question of Holocaust education, in a time when we are just barely starting to sort of raise and reckon with questions of um, the genocides that are part of colonialism in Africa um, and part of the 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 destruction of and treatment of indigenous populations in the United States and reckoning with those things in new ways and this much older, more established enterprise of Holocaust education and how to think about those things together, how to think about those things um, in the same language and for arguably the same audience in a way that doesn't feel minimizing of either and feels sort of uh, appropriately weighted and appropriately framed not to minimize either. Um, it happens to be a really funny essay. The book on the whole is a really funny book. Um, but just our conversation reminded me of this story. And I think it's, it's worth visiting. If you're somebody who's spent a life of Jewish education, sort of marinating in, in, uh, in, some degree of Holocaust commemoration, um, reading this <laughs> feels like a real cold shower and a really interesting reframe um, and, and worth thinking about as you think about how to, how to do Holocaust education and outreach to a different kind of population. I co-sign everything you just said. It's a great chapter and a great book. And, and the book is great and the audiobook is also great if you're into audiobooks. I have like Mondo endorsements. I've been thinking about my list of endorsements for like over a week and I'm really excited to share them, but I'll try and give them fast. So first endorsement is a romance novel called The Intimacy Experiment by Rosie Dannon. And it is about a porn star who has started a startup about uh, sex education for couples. And she does a um, series about relationships with a local reform rabbi in LA. And it is a romance novel between a rabbi and a porn star. And I loved it. Um, somewhat surprisingly, did not have quite as much sex as I would have liked, but you win some, you lose some, you should still totally read it. Um, there's some like really excellent, like board meeting scenes where I was like, having been on a synagogue board, story checks out. Um, so that was super fun. Um, I want to recommend a cookbook called Simply Julia by Julia Tertian. This is just like an excellent cookbook. Um, Julia Tertian comes from a family that is Jewish and there's like a ton of um, Jewish, Jewishy recipes in this book and some stories about her family um, and her kind of heritage that are really lovely and beautiful. Um, and it also has like really outstanding essays in it, um, about diet culture and, um, what it's like to be gay and, and a kind of public food person and all kinds of things. Um, and all of the recipes are really designed to be cooked at home. Like this is not like a restaurant cookbook. She's really a home cook. And, um, there's a ton of vegan re um, recipes in it. Um, there's a lot of vegetarian and pescatarian recipes. There are um, recipes with like pork and other, um, trafe ingredients in them, but there's a, it's not one of those cookbooks where it's like, there's only like five recipes that I, as a pescatarian could eat. It's like, this is a really great cookbook that we've already um, in, in owning it for a week, we've probably made like eight recipes from it. So highly recommend. Um, I also just read a collection of short stories called the secret lives of church ladies by Danielle Filia. And, um, it is a book about black women, um, who have a background in the church. There's nothing Jewish about it, but it felt so resonant. It's a lot of, um, women kind of who are not, who, who are not for lack of a better term, like from Christians anymore, but come from a, uh, like a deeply church background, um, kind of coming to terms with their lives. And so many of those, um, themes are so resonant with me and with so many of my friends who kind of like grew up, um, in the Orthodox community and are kind of like 
not exactly in the Orthodox community anymore, but maybe half in, half out. Um, so I, I really recommend it. And it's a great collection. I read it, um, I think on the second day of Shavuot in, in one day. So it's, it's very quick. Um, and the last thing that I want to uh, recommend is a song. It's called Our Power. It's by Rena Branson. Um, I was recently on a call, like an organizing call, and they opened the call by playing this song. And I was like, I am so distracted by how good this song is that like now I just want to listen to this song. So um, I will put a link to it in the show notes, but it's like really hauntingly beautiful. It's also like, it's very inspirational. Um, but sometimes like those inspirational songs just like aren't that good of a song. And so then it just feels kind of corny. And this is like an incredibly beautiful song. Um, and so I recommend it. All right. It was so nice talking to both of you. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. Thank you, Zahava. Thanks so much. Great to see you both. And thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks to Daniel Zana for editing our show. If you have a minute, um, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on whatever service you download your podcast from. Um, and you could also let us know what you like us to discuss on a future episode. We've gotten a few recommendations from people lately, which we love. You can leave a comment on our post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media on Facebook, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. And that's a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes every month. See you next month. <laughs>